Good morning. How are you? You doing all right? Nice to see you, and welcome if you're a visitor here. So we're carrying on with our Gideon series, and I've really been enjoying it, have you? I've really seen some new things in there. And we catch up now um, with the story, a little bit of a recap, if, you, if this is your first uh, week and you haven't heard anything about it before. So we start off with the nation of Israel. They were far from God, and they were living in caves under oppression of the Midianites. You imagine having to live in caves and hiding and in strongholds. Their crops were repeatedly ruined. They lived in poverty and hunger. They're living just on the breadline. They're hiding and desperate, and they call out to God for help. In Judges 6, it says, Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. They, that's the Midians, came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midians so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, it's interesting to know that the Midianites were a nomadic people, so they traveled here and there, and they didn't plant their own crops because they were always traveling. And so they would time it, that they would come to Israel at the time of the harvest and steal all their crops and ravage the land. And so the Israelites were crying out to the Lord for help. Now, God hears Israel's cries, and, and the Lord um, goes to a young man to say, you are going to be the ruler, the helper, the leader, and this angel of the Lord, who we looked at the other week, was the pre-incarnate Jesus. He goes and calls a young man, Gideon, to deliver his people from the Midianites. Now, as an aside, it's interesting to note that who are the Midianites? Who are these terrible people? Who is this enemy of Israel? If you remember, when we studied our Moses series, Moses, when he committed murder, kind of by accident fighting an Egyptian, he escaped and ran to the Midianites, and the Midianites welcomed him in to be part of them. He was a shepherd there for many years. He married a Midianite girl, and his father-in-law was Jethro, a Midianite. In fact, a priest in the Midianites. And so the Midianites, they were friendly once with the Israelites until they were in the desert. Now, Midian, the original person who started the whole uh, Midianites, where the Midianites come from, the man Midian, he was actually one of the six sons of Abraham. After Sarah died, Abraham married again a lady called Keturah. And so Midian is a son of Abraham and half-brother of Isaac. That's interesting, isn't it? And so Midian's descendants became the Midianites, and there's this tribe of nomads that many years later, a few hundred years later, are bringing their camels to devastate Israel. Interesting how it all fits together. And so previously on the Gideon story, we meet him hiding in the wine press, threshing wheat. And we know why now. It's to avoid it being stolen by the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord calls him. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But Gideon is timid and cautious. My clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So here's Gideon with this inferiority complex. I'm the smallest of the smallest of the smallest tribe. And the Lord is saying to him, you are a mighty warrior. Rise up, deliver your people. If you remember, Gideon then does a sacrifice. He quickly goes off, he makes a goat curry or a goat stew, and he brings it back, and there's the meat, and there's the broth, and he puts it on a rock, and the angel of the Lord, it burns up in fire. And this is a sign to Gideon that it's real. 
And it's interesting as well that Gideon then goes on to call it, and I think this is quite prophetic, he goes on to call it, it says, Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. And this is prophetic of what's to come. That when there's this sign of everything being, you know, uh, on fire and everything, and the sacrifice is taken, he makes that altar, the Lord is peace. And it's prophetic of what's to come in the future, that the land will go into peace. And then... Uh, the next thing we see happen was the Asherah pole. Do you remember at night, the angel of the Lord gave him his first mission as deliverer. And his first mission as deliverer is to cut down the Asherah pole that they were worshipping and smash up the Baal altar. And he's so scared and he's so driven by fear that he does it in the middle of the night. And all the village wake up to this smoldering bull on fire must have smelt. They must have woken up to that kind of roast meat uh, sensation. And they woke up and they find it's all smashed and it's all destroyed. They're angry. They want to kill him. His dad has to stand up for him. But again, we see it's like a prophetic sign of what's to come. Idolatry will be smashed in the nation. Then Gideon gathers an army. And we looked at this with Matthew last week. He gathers an army by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this cautious, timid young man, the Holy Spirit comes on him and suddenly he can raise an army. And at this time, it explains to us how the Midianites now gather together with other eastern peoples, and they all camp in the valley, and there's hundreds and beyond counting. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, calling all the tribes together and gathering an army. And at this moment, the, the Israel isn't like one nation in a country, but it's all tribes all dotted around. And so to be able to give a call and bring those tribes together really is heroic. And then Matthew talked last week about, do you remember, fleece wet, fleece dry, Gideon looking for more signs again. And now we come to chapter 7, which is our passage for today. So that's a little bit of a roundup of previously on Gideon. Okay, and here we go, today's chapter 7. So if you remember, Gideon's brought an army together from all the tribes, but the eastern peoples are without number camping in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, chapter 7. Early in the morning, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. Now, this isn't what you want to hear. You're a young deliverer. You've done the test. You've done everything you're asked. Your army is too small. It's too small for this massive enemy. And God says to him, you have too many men. He, and it's not what you want to hear. When these men have, it says, camels and locusts beyond number. Why does God do this? Why does he say you've got too many? He says, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. So in other words, God wants to prove to Israel that it's him doing it, not them somehow by luck or chance or their own strength, but it is God who is rescuing them. It's his love, it's his power, it's his rescue. And so it's already pretty impossible, but he wants it to be painfully obvious to everybody that it is God who does the rescue, not them. And so to make the point, he's going to reduce the army to a smaller number. And he has a strategy for doing this. And the first one is a kind of self-selection. Now announce to the army, he says, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Now that is a lot of men go home. 22,000 
and only 10,000 remain. I can imagine Gideon's despair, can you? He's done all the tests, he's checked everything, the burnt offering, that went up, the fleece wet, the fleece dry. And God's message to to the men was, look, you know, if you're not really up to this, if your heart's not in it and you're afraid, you can just go home, and they did. So 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. So after all this whittling it down to 300, he says, Now go, go right now, in the night, with 300 men. And you have to hear what happens with that next week with Sean. Oh, so now we're just going to unpack a little bit, have a little bit of pre-battle analysis. So God whittles down the army. Now this is interesting because it's already too small. And now he shrinks it so that they know that it is God who delivers them by his strength, not their own. And this is his strategy, to make it smaller. Now, the strategy he does, there's two different ways he does. And the first one is the self-selection. And he allows all the faint-hearted to leave. Their choice. If your heart's not in it, you can go home. And in Judges 7, 3, it said, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So that's when the 22,000, they look at each other and go, it's not my bag. What about you? No, I'm scared. Are you scared? I'm, let's go home. We'll all go home. And 22,000 go home. That is a lot. Who just don't really believe that it's going to happen. And then the second selection is a God selection. So the first one, the people select themselves. Oh, I'm allowed to go home. I think I will. And the second one is a God selection. And when they go down to the river to drink, it is God who's going to select them. When he says, I will thin them out for you there, I think I, think I would just, my stomach would be turning over, giddy, and just, I will thin them out for you there even more. You think he'd be going around going, no, lap, lap like a dog, lap like a dog. Interestingly, did you know how dogs lap? That actually, when their tongue goes in the water, their tongue actually goes backwards like a scoop, and it kind of scoops the water. Now, they're not able to drink like we drink. If they put their head into the water, they would drown. And so when a dog laps, their tongue actually goes backwards like a scoop. And then they like catch the water in their mouth. Did you know that? Interesting fact. Cats are the same. So the lapping like this is like a dog will drink out of a bowl and its tongue is actually like scoop, 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 scoop. So they were cupping water like this and drinking like this. It's amazing, isn't it? Whereas the other ones just 
they were thirsty. They just stuck their head in the river and drank, and uh, that was the difference. And so those who drank from their hands and those who kneel down, they are separated, and God does his selection here. And what is interesting is those who were lapping like this, they're in a dangerous situation. They know that they're on the brink of battle, and so they are drinking, keeping an eye out and watching what's going to happen. But the ones who are told, you can drink now, oh, right, we were in a battle uh, situation, but now I can drink. Oh, actually, I'm really thirsty. Head down in the river. And they're just drinking. They're distracted. They lost focus. They're distracted on quenching their thirst now. They've forgotten all about the danger. And God says, those will be no good to you in battle. Send them home. So they get selected to go home, and it reduces from 10,000 to 300. Now, you've only got 300 men. What, what is going to happen with 300 men? But basically, God is left with the bravest. And Gideon now has a band who are unafraid, brave, want to do it, and alert. And so everyone else is spare baggage. You've got 300 who want to do it. So he's kind of left with the dream team. That's what he's left with. And God whittles it down to this small band who are focused, committed, and full of faith that Gideon can do it, and they will do it with them. Now, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking that surely all 32,000 of those men wanted relief from the oppression of the Midianites. Surely all the 32,000, they all wanted it to be over. The famine and poverty and crops being ruined and being oppressed by the Midianites, surely they wanted it over, and they did, but they weren't prepared to fight for it. They kind of rode on the back of the others, and they weren't prepared. Only 300 brave men are left. And this part of the story kind of ends with a David-Goliath-type scenario, the little boy versus the giant, who says Gideon is in a high place looking down. As he looks down in the valley, he sees the enemy in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. I don't know if you could imagine just being, a, if we were a band of 300, and you're facing camels without number, you're in a battle and you're being charged by men on camels charging at you. What hope do you have? And they were in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. And during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. And there it is right there, the promise. Right there is the promise from God that Gideon can walk on. I am going to give it into your hands. He has nothing else. He's a bit timid. He's got 300 men. The army have gone home, but he has a promise from God. Nothing is impossible with God. So that's the story. What can we learn from it? We're going to look at three things that we learn from this story. And the first one is faith. Now, Matthew and Sean have recently preached on faith. We have a lot of uh, talks on faith. So you often want an in-depth on faith. Go on the website and listen to our faith talks there. This one's going to be a little bit shorter on faith because we know about it already. But faith, faith is trust in God's promises. Gideon was given the promise, or give them into your hands. And with that promise, we hold on to God's promises and we don't give up however impossible it seems. How big are our giants? What camels stampeding at us are in our life right now? What camels do you have coming at you? 
Sometimes it feels like that for me. Men and camels beyond counting, like locusts. So I had a little look at locusts. Now, locusts are related to grasshoppers. And these insects form enormous swarms that spread across regions, devouring crops as they go and leaving serious agricultural damage in their wake. And when there's a season in different countries where locusts are coming, the farmers are just desperate to shoo them away. David Attenborough on BBC Earth, he was talking on the desert locust. Now, this is a particular type that sleeps for years and years and years, and then they all wake up at the same time. And this is what he says. As they fly, swarms join up with other swarms to form gigantic plagues, several billion strong, and as much as 40 miles wide, and they will consume every edible thing that lies in their path. No wonder the enemy here is described as locusts. That's what coming. They're going to destroy everything in their path. What situation in your life seems overwhelming? What are your locusts and camels right now? I want to encourage us to have faith in God and in his promises. When we feel small against unnumbered giants, locusts, and camels, to have an unwavering faith in God. Remember his promises. Remember what he's done for you before. Stick on in there. What God can do with our little. When we come to him with the little we have and we're abandoned and we offer him our all, see what he can do with it. We just need to be willing and focused. So I want to encourage us not to hold back in fear and pack up and go home like the other soldiers, but to hold on in there and believe God for what he's going to do for us. It's interesting as well how when Gideon's sacrifice, he called it the Lord of peace. The Lord is a Lord of peace. He wants to bring peace into our lives. He wants to bring the peace. And God brought peace when the people were brave and they acted. When the people gave themselves in faith, God brought the peace. So let's come to him and offer him our all and see him bring peace. The second thing we learn in this story is about being ready. Now, I found a challenge in this passage. It was really, as I was reading it, it's so challenging about all the men who go home. It's a challenge. I was thinking, what, what would I do in that situation? Would I the first wave that go home that chose not to, or the second wave that went home that were told they weren't suitable? The A was the self-selecting and afraid, and second was the distracted. It made me think, when, you know, do we sometimes self-select ourselves out of things because we're afraid? Do we sometimes find we, we're not focused, so we're not in the right place, we're not ready? And I noticed in this instance how God allowed them to go home with no judgment. Is this okay if you have no faith and you're afraid? You just go home. He let them go home. There's no judgment. And yet they missed out on a tremendous adventure that only happened to the 300. It was the 300 that initiated victory. And I wonder, did they ever regret it? I was thinking, when they were enjoying that 40-year peace and they were sat by the fire, riding on the sacrifice of the other people, did they ever sit there and think, oh, you know, I, I, wish, I, I wish I'd been up for it? On retrospect, I wonder, I wish, when their little children and grandchildren asked them, you know, Tadki, what were you doing? Were, were you breaking your jar and running with Gideon? What were you doing, Grandpa? How did the battle go? And Grandpa goes, well, um, from what my cousin told me, <laughs> darling, I think. And I just, it just challenged me, really. 
Um, and how much more for those who were asked to go home, you know, to know that one, some went home out of fear, and then the others were asked to go home because their eye wasn't on the ball. Now, it's good that some got a second chance. It's interesting when you see, when the battle happens, that we'll learn about next week, after the battle, when the Midianites are running away, they need more armies to, like, mop it all up and finish it off. And so Gideon calls for the men who've gone home and for the men of Ephraim as well. In chapter 7, 23, it says, Israelites from Natalie, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out. Now, these are some of the tribes that went home. Now they're called back. And maybe on reflection, they're like, oh, I do get my chance to be part of this. And they were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messages throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites. And the larger force was needed to make sure the battle was assured and that they wiped out their enemy. So some of them still got to play their part. Once the pioneers had initiated it, some of the late starters, as it were, they got involved and uh, were part of it. And it's interesting to think how Gideon himself was part of the afraid camp at the start of this story. He was like all the afraid men went home. He started off afraid, threshing wine in the wine press, asking for multiple signs. He was afraid. But when he gave himself to God's purposes and was filled with the Holy Spirit, he suddenly becomes a leader of men and armies and a leader of a dream team. So it shows us not to give up hope, but to know that God wants to use us. He just needs our willingness. And I, and I think, imagine that you and I have the chance to be on the dream team, because we do. Because God wants us all involved. He has a role for us, for how we love and care for one another. It's so important in this world. It's beyond titles and roles. How we treat one another, how we love each other, and our world outside is so important. How we care for each other, how we bring our influence for change, for support or for care. How sometimes we put our neck on the line for something that is right and true. How we stand up for something in the workplace or at school when it's tough. And which teams we sign up for, where we volunteer within the church, where we sacrifice, where we play our part in tithing. And when we are generous and faith-filled. And when we reach out to those who don't know Jesus yet, and they don't know him, his care, his love, his forgiveness, the healing... When we step out and we're brave, we know the promises of God and we pray for someone for healing or we stand up for something or we care for them when it's going against the flow. When we care for those and we do a Jesus thing where we're living out a Jesus life that the world may see like that light on the hill that shouldn't be hid. It doesn't matter how small, but God takes what is small and he uses it. Gideon, he went from the smallest and weakest to leading tribes and then a crack team of 300. So for you and I, let's make sure that we're ready and that we don't be afraid, but we have faith and that we're ready to be used and we don't let fear hold us back. Okay, number three, I call this one size. Size does not matter to God. I remember in school, when we were in school as little children and all the children were growing, and there came a point where I stopped growing at five foot two and a half. It's very important, isn't it, the half? Five foot two and a half. And yet I had a twin brother who grew to be six foot three. And uh, as we went through school, when we came back after, after uh, GCSEs and then we went into sixth form, 
I can remember all our mates going, whoa, what happened to you? Because I seemed even smaller. And I, I was quite petite and small, and my brother grew to six foot three. And my brother used to call us the traveling freak show. Because everywhere we went, people would go, you're twins, but you're so small and he's so tall. And we'd just wave every time, every, you're so small and he's so tall. And then they go, are you twins in any other way? And we go, no. Because <laughs> obviously he was a boy and I was a girl. And so being small, I grew up, and they would go, oh, we need a small person. Sarah, will you be center in the netball team? Because I could run around through the legs of everybody else. Or sometimes they needed somebody who could crawl into space and reach something. And being small, you grow up with this, this thing in the school years. Then when you become an adult, you forget that you're small. It doesn't matter. Or maybe some of you here grew up taller than everyone else. And they would go, oh, you're tall and gangly. And then, you know, one day you find you're the only person in the house that can change a light bulb. It's handy, isn't it? But size doesn't matter to God. It's not about size. It's not about our size. It's about what we bring to him, what we offer to him. You think of the widow's might. The little boy who brought his packed lunch when Sean taught us the other week on feeding the 5,000. He sees our weakness. When we are small, and sometimes we go, I am weak. I, I am just in a season right now that is hard for me. God sees our weakness, and he says, that's okay with me. I just need your availability. He doesn't wait for us to be strong. In fact, Paul said he boasted of his weakness because God was strong in his weakness. In 2 Corinthians, it says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, when we are weak, it's Jesus' power that can come in us. His grace is sufficient for us, and his power is made perfect. Now, there's a time in like the history of the church where we started some projects when we were very small, and we were small, our, our size, we had very little resources, and so we were pioneering the church, and we started the church on the 5th of November, 1991. So next weekend, the church will be 32 years old. Isn't that amazing? And we started with nine of us, me and Julian, seven young people. God called us to uh, Trubos that was in the middle of um, estates that had terrible poverty and economic need. And we wanted to reach our community and serve it. And we started to put on events that churches like usually do. And we found events were sabotage. Things were set on fire and various things happened. And we were like, events are not going to work here. With the young people, especially, that were trying to reach, there was huge truancy, crime, a teenage pregnancy, and bringing all of that into like a, you know, a youth meeting was just not working. And so we started this project called The Gap. And The Gap was trying to meet the gap between school and work. And these children like, were dropping out of school and just falling into the gap and never quite going on to training or work. And we thought, as a church, can we possibly fill that gap? And, and when we tried to do this, we were asking ourselves, how can we make a difference? Because we were looking at these young people who were marginalized, on the edge. They had developed antisocial behavior. They were disruptive, truanting, impoverished. They were unwanted. Um, some of them were involved in crime, teenage pregnancy, very sad lives. And systems were failing these young people. They didn't fit into the system. And we said, can we make a difference as a local church, as a small local church? We're so small. We have so little resources, but we have ourselves. We, we have us. What if we give the little we have to God and see what he does with it? 
And so we started this project, The Gap. It wasn't easy. The original team, let's have a little look now at the original team here. If you can see on the screen, Tim and Mark started The Gap. The top left picture, Tim is in the red top, and Mark is in the kind of yellow top with a white vest over the top there. And they started for the first few months or the year. And then Julian asked me to come in and start, you know, steer it more into an education program. So then it was just me and Tim and Mark and the three of us doing this. And then we pulled in Sean because we were mostly doing young women. And on a Thursday afternoon then, Sean would come and teach them how to do beauty. And then we pulled in Tammy. And this was the original team. And later there were other people who came and went from that team and signed Suzanne became part of that team for many years. So here we were, just a little team. And you can see... You can see us there, can't you, on the screen? Uh, this little team with very little resources, we had one grant of £15,000, which we split between the boys. And the boys had families, and they shared a wage of 7000 each. And I worked for free until uh, about a year or two later, a funder came in and said, look at, look at this 40-hour project you're all doing. I can get you a wage. And then we started to build up training for the team, and everyone was on a wage, and that really helped. But when we were doing this... We, we felt so small and so out of our depth. How could we do it? And the project ran five days a week for a whole school year, and some of the groups would come in for three days a week for the whole year, and others would come in for two days a week for the whole year. And we met up in our Penland Center, and we used this as a kind of indoor, outdoor project of training and skills. Now, some of these young people, they, their lives were so tragic. I remember one young girl who um, her father had left, and she's living with her mother. And then her mother got a new boyfriend, and after a while, the mother split up with the boyfriend and just went, just went, disappeared, leaving the young 14-year-old living with the mother's boyfriend. Now, he was kind enough to look after her for a while, but obviously it wasn't really appropriate, and social services got involved. And so she got taken from there and placed with her alcoholic auntie, who lived literally around the corner from us. And I remember one day her turning up at the Gap Centre with a black bin bag being thrown out again by our alcoholic auntie would rave and kick her out, and she turned up with all her belongings in the black bag. I remember once going to an agency meeting where we went over the auntie's house, and there were all different agencies planning her future, and it went on so long I had to go to meet another student. So I left, but this young girl, she followed me outside. I remember standing by the wall and her saying to me, Sarah, help me, help me. They're taking over my life. And these young people were supposed to be, you know, going into school in a nice uniform and proper shoes and doing lessons. And they couldn't. Their lives were a wreck. Whereas when they came on the gap, we were able to help them and love them and care for them and take them through education and training. I remember another young girl, and she was, was such a serious bully in the area that all, even the other pupils were frightened of her. And one time, she had terrible tooth taken. Her family didn't bother with it, so we rang the family, said, can we ring a dentist? They gave the number of the dentist. I drove her to the dentist. When I got to the dentist, they said the whole tooth will have to come out. But she is so frightened. She said to me, because no one else was around, will you come in with me? And I said, yes, of course. And she wouldn't let go of my hand. I ended up kneeling on the dentist floor, holding her hand while they tried to pull her tooth out. They only got half of it out. They had to dig the other half out. She's in pain. I took her home in my car. She ran down the window, spitting blood out of the car window. And I drove her home. There's nobody home. They knew she's having a tooth out. Nobody home. There's no paracetamol. There's no care. She said, drop me at my grand's. I dropped her at her grand's. Her, her attitude changed from that moment. 
And we, none of us mentioned it, but just that love and care changed her. And then we had another young man who was very quiet. He lived with his gran, and his parents had just abandoned him. In fact, they had moved to another city and left him behind. He moved in with his gran, who was very elderly and frail. So he was the gran's carer. So he was coming and doing the gap, but he cared for the gran. One day he came in, and he didn't speak. All day he didn't speak. And eventually Tim was able to get out of him what was wrong. And that the day before, his gran had died, and he didn't know what to do. And she just died in her sleep in bed, and he'd spent a whole day just lying next to her on the bed because he didn't know what to do. And then he came into the gap the next day, and then when he told us, obviously, we were able to sort things out, put things in process. These were the lives of the young people. You know, some were, had gone through uh, violence and, and stealing in gangs and things like this, but their lives were changed. Their lives were transformed. And they went on to work, education, training, they used to come back and show us their first car, sign their first passport, their first baby. It was an honor and a privilege. But some nights I, cr I cried myself to sleep for those young people. It was just terrible. Does God care? And yes, through the church, we were able to reach them. And it was amazing how the gap was supporting them here, but we had so little. And the gap was supporting these tragic lives, unwanted, surviving helping them gain an education, the skills they needed for independent living, qualifications to move on to an apprenticeship training or, or employment. And it was amazing to see the transformation in these young people. And we ran this project for 13 years until, because we'd met with different agencies, it was adopted by the education uh, department, and we didn't need to do it anymore. We kind of uh, got ourselves out of a job. It was hugely successful, The Gap. We went on to win awards, funding, we're on the BBC, Children in Need, in the Times Educational Supplement. We won the City Regeneration Awards three times. We went on to other councils around the UK, uh, to other councils in Wales, and then I was asked to go and speak around the UK, sharing in national conferences with industry heads and uh, education heads how to bring young people's lives. And at the question time at the end, someone would always put their hand up and say, is there a church near me that could do this? because I was always presented as this is what we were doing as a local church. And the statistical evidence showed Christians making a difference. It was a huge witness to everybody, not only in our community, but beyond. And the project principles became adopted as standard into the education system at that time. Also at that time, no funding was given to religious organizations. It was just not allowed to do it. But on the basis of the work that we did and the work that other churches like us all across the nation of Wales did, that was all recorded by Gwaini and given into the Welsh Assembly, the law changed where churches could receive funding. And the success of it was clearly the Jesus factor because we were just a little team out of our depth, making it up, going along as best we could, not knowing what to do next, serving, caring, teaching, helping these young people. And the success was clearly the Jesus factor. A bit like having a 32,000 army and God whittling it down to 300 to say, the victory is mine. And this was totally a Jesus in us at work every day. It was each of us as a team taking Jesus in us to be with some of the most marginalized, disruptive young people that by the end of the 10 months that they had with us were changed and like brothers and sisters and family. In fact, I remember one really tough young man crying in the car park on the day of giving their certificates and everything and saying, I don't want this to end. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. So the success 
This Jesus factor, yes, it was education, but it was the personal impact of love and care and becoming part of the Gap family. That is something every single one of us can do in our lives, every person that we touch. We can live a life where we, we go home we're in our own selfish bubble and we don't think, or we can look and, and love and care and serve the people around us, the Jesus in us, going to work every day. Every one of us can do this. And so time and again, feeling overwhelmed, ill-equipped and out of our depth, it was so clear it was Jesus making a difference in these young people's lives. And the crime rate reduced, the teenage pregnancy reduced, and the car crime reduced in the area, which was amazing. So at this point, it's not the size. It's not the size. It's the faith. It's the focus. Our obedience, our sacrifice, the crack team saying, I am willing, here I am, whatever it takes. Now notice as we close here, the 300 who remained were given all the provisions of the people who went home. Look at this in the scripture, it says, so Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So the 300 who stayed received all the resources of those who went home, the fleecy blankets to keep them warm at night, their trumpets, their provisions, their food. You can imagine, oh, nicer packed lunch than mine. And they would have that. Now, do you know, it's interesting how they received a hundred times as much, because I asked Simon to do the maths for me. They had a hundred times more food and warmth, the ones who stayed. They were rewarded, not just with 40 years peace, but in the moment, as they were out there in the cold nights in the valley and on top of the hill, they were rewarded immediately with the basics that they needed, more food, more warmth, more provision, the resources. And when we give ourselves to Jesus, he rewards us. When we give up for the kingdom and for the king, he rewards us. In Mark 10, do you remember when Peter says to Jesus, what about us, Lord? We've given up everything for you. And Jesus turns to them and says, surely you will receive in this age a hundred times as much and in the age to come. And he says it's for those who have sacrificed for the kingdom and for following Jesus will receive a hundred times as much in this age and eternal life to come. So in all our serving, there's a reward. There's a reward now and there's a reward later. That's amazing, isn't it? So that closes this part of Gideon for this week. So let's just conclude with this. Let us make sure we're continuing to live in faith and not be living by our fears. Let's be ready and brave. Count me in. Sign me up. I want to play my part. And size. Remember, size doesn't matter to God, and small is okay. We just say, here I am, Lord. I offer you my life. See what you do with it. And then we see amazing things of what he wants to do. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do thank you for the scriptures where everything is recorded for us to learn from. And we thank you for Gideon. I thank you, Lord, that his mistakes and his weakness and his second guessing and his victories are all in there. And Lord, we ask that you'll help us to be brave, like those 300. Help us, Jesus, to live this life by faith. And Lord, we think at this moment of all the people outside of this building, outside of the churches here in Swansea, I ask that you'll help us, Lord, that our lives will be like that light on the hill, that we will have impact on those around us when they see your love. 
We thank you, Lord, for every young person touched by the gap over those years. I ask that you continue to bless them. And Lord, help us to do all we can for those around us in need. In Jesus' name, amen.